Well, this is David Gibson. I'm at the Ecological Society of America meetings in a hot and humid New Orleans. And uh, right now I'm sitting here with Carla Staver, and we're going to talk about, about the meetings, about her research, and some other issues for a few minutes. So, Carla, welcome to our podcast. Thanks very much. So let's start by, why don't you introduce yourself a little bit and tell us something about your research interests and background. Great. Um, so my name is Carla Staver. I'm an assistant professor at Yale University. I've been there for about four years. Um, I started at Yale after a two-year postdoc at Columbia University in New York. Um, and uh, before that I did, I guess I'm going backwards, um, before that I did a PhD at Princeton, um, uh, co-advised by Simon Levin and Laura Sedin. Before that, I did a master's degree in botany at the University of Cape Town. Ah, that explains your South African research. Which is how I got hooked into South African research, okay. exactly. I would probably characterize myself as a savanna ecologist, I guess more broadly a plant ecologist, but I am mostly interested in savanna ecosystems. So I think savannas are cool because they have bottom-up limitations. Water limitation and nutrient limitation both play an important role in savanna vegetation, but there are also systems where top-down processes are really important. So. Fires occur frequently in a lot of savannas. Um, herbivory is also an important process. Um, and the yes. interplay between those bottom-up and top-down processes are, uh, are what make savannas really cool and exciting. So that reminds me, you had a paper in the Journal of Ecology a few years ago on browse traps and herbivory. Tell us a little bit about that. So that's, that, that's actually work. So I did that work during my postdoc, but it stemmed from stuff I started during my master's degree. So we started, actually, so that, that's work with William Bond. So he started in about 1999-2000. Uh, oh, he's um, been working in those grasses for a long time. Spent a long time. He's been doing it for much longer than I have yeah. been. Um, so, uh, so they established a series of herbivore exposures in a savanna in South Africa called Shishlui and Falusi mm. National Park. Um, and so those herbivore exposures ran for about 12 years. Um, and we had an earlier paper looking at herb uh, the effects of browsers on particularly the tree community. There's also, of course, effects of grazers on the grass community as well. But this paper in particular was looking at what happens after you take the exposures down. So it's often the case that mm, when people have yeah. these like long-running exposures, they don't want to take them down. Because, of course, you don't want to take them down. Right. Why reverse yeah. the, these lovely long-term effects of this experiment? But in this case, we had to take them down because actually quite a lot of work to maintain them yeah, I'm sure it is. Um, so in the system. So we took them down, and then we sort of took the opportunity a couple of years later to go check on how persistent those effects were and whether we had managed to trigger anything like a long-term long or persistent shift in that system. Um, I see. Yeah, interesting. And found that actually the effects were quite persistent, much more persistent in the tree layer than the grass layer. Yeah, so. yeah. Excellent. Yes. Okay. One of the reasons we're talking today is because you are a new associate editor for the Journal of Ecology, so thank you very much for well, thank joining you. the board. And so tell us a bit about what sort of papers have you handled so far, probably three or four papers, actually. Yeah, yeah, I think it's been about three or four. Um, I, it's one of the, 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 I think one of the curious experiences or one of the things that I've been most surprised by is the fact that a lot of the things you know best about, you have conflicts of interest about. Um, and so you wind up, actually, I would say I handle things that are like just slightly outside have you seen that lovely dragonfly? Oh, I wish we could include a photograph of that. <laughs> um, there's a lovely podcast. dragonfly sitting on the couch over there. Um, anyways, uh, so I've been handling papers on sort of like, uh, I, I, I've had a couple about plant soil feedbacks in some mm -hmm. ecosystems, which has been really fun because it means I get to read some things that are well within the system that I work in, but a little bit outside of, I think, probably the literature that I would read normally. So it's like a really fun chance to kind of get to get to read some new and cool Expands stuff. your horizons a little Expands bit. Expands your horizons yeah. a little bit, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Um, so as a new AE with, you know, three or four papers under your belt, so what would you say to any 
how the new AE set. It's it's uh, it's much harder to find reviewers than I ever <laughs> imagined it would be. <laughs> it's that. Yeah. Yeah. Is that, uh, but but actually, I mean, so I think that's been sort of the primary challenge, and I just, I mean, as a only a, ever having been on it from the reviewer, and I just had no idea that like yeah that, yeah that this is a thing. But you know, I mean, the other the flip side of it is that the journal has been really supportive, and I've gotten really good mentorship from from the sort of senior editorial team. Good. Um, so it's been like on, on the whole, it's been a really positive experience. Good. I'm glad to hear that. Yeah. So. From the other side now then, so now you can see, you know, like I said, the other side. So what sort of advice would you give to an author preparing a paper for submission to a, uh, to a journal like Journal of Ecology? So I've actually been teaching, and this is something that I've gotten really interested in since I started at Yale, and it's especially something that I've gotten interested in interactions with students. So the, the graduate level course that I teach at Yale at the moment is scientific writing for ecology and evolutionary biology. Mm. Um, and I think it's... A, a very central challenge for a lot of people that, you know, I mean, a lot of people do just really incredible science and they do really incredible work. Um, and I think writing is a tough process. Setting up your papers such that the, you know, like this great work that you've done sort of speaks for itself, but really shines through very clearly, right? Like telling story that story very clearly um, is, I think, to me, one of the primary differences between work that kind of works in the published format and work right. that doesn't. So, um, so helping grad students learn how to write right. is very important. Yeah, absolutely. So we've been, the text that we've been using for that class is uh, Writing Science by Josh Schimmel. Um, mm, and there's yes. a lovely paper by Gopin and Swan from 1990, which I also really enjoy. I've been using yeah. his text for that course. But, you know, I mean, there's just some really, I mean, a lot of it sort of, once having having read the book or having read those papers, it it's all very, it is simultaneously with really obvious advice and also really helpful advice that you didn't know before you read it. Mm, yeah, yeah, well, that's good. So another topic um, I'd like to ask you about in the short amount of time we have is um, one of the things that British Ecological Society do is doing is uh, to promote uh, gender and diversity issues and inclusivity issues uh, across uh, ecology, really. Um, as a woman ecologist, is, are there any comments you have about that, those topics? Anything you want to share? Sure. I mean, I, I'm not exactly sure what I would say. I mean, it's an interesting, I, you know, I think maybe beyond ecology, it's a really interesting time to be interested in issues of gender and participation and diversity and stuff like that. It's, you know, it's, and I, uh, I don't know if this is quite the right way to put it, but I think like weird, I mean, weird stuff happens. You know, like we've all had these sort of bad experiences and maybe worse experiences than we realized at the time. Right. It's like, sure, it's been I think it's been tough in some ways. And I think like you sort of like there you have experiences that change the way you interact with the world in ways that you're not even really conscious of. Um, and uh, I think ecology is a much more welcoming field than a lot of other things, but that doesn't make it easy. I think sometimes people have tough experiences in the field. So my experience was throughout my master's and PhD was of having had incredibly wonderful mentors and supportive mentors. So one of the messages that I think that I would convey, as we sort of have this like myth in science that like, you know, like it's, it should be, you know, like really brilliant people do this on their own. And I think that I would say that like really nobody does this on their own. Anybody who succeeds in science does it with a huge amount of help, mm, right? right? Um, and so that, you know, it's okay to want and need help because everybody does. Um, but that also makes it tough because it means that if you're not getting help, you know, it means that the environment that you're in, which can be, I think for some people, I have the very great luck to be in a really positive environment the entire time. Um, but if you're not in a positive environment, that can be really difficult. Um, 
I have at points in my life experienced much less positive and much less supportive environments. And like, it's really hard to overstate the extent to which that just immediately makes life infinitely more difficult. I would not be where I am today if I had not had the very good luck to have very positive environments most of the Yeah, so it's probably important for young scientists and and potential grad students to to look at potential mentors and and try and find out as much as you can ahead of time. Talk to people in their labs, like, and truthfully also, like, when people warn you about people or places, like, listen. Like, Mm. you think you can take it? Everybody thinks they can take it, but that's just a... Well, why, why try to take it? Why not well, go why, somewhere right. else? You shouldn't have to take it. Have. Go work somewhere else as somebody who has like a really good reputation for being really supportive because it makes all the difference in the world. Yeah. So there's really there's the sort of the academic recommendation that potential mentors have right. and also the personal relationship right. reputation. Right. And I think you'll often find that people in labs are really willing to tell people the truth. Like you're mm-hmm. not, you know, like I think my experience has been that when you ask you know when you ask people what people are like to work with they they try to give you a really honest and considered opinion right like they're not like they're not going to lie to you to be polite right they're going to kind of so it's really worth the point is it's really worth asking because you're going to get quality answers that are worth paying attention to yeah that's that's good advice so finally um, it's Wednesday at ESA we've had a couple of days already um, how are you finding the meetings um, I'm, I'm enjoying it a lot I think I uh I feel a little bit like I should be taking more advantage of New Orleans than I am, but uh, I've been, I don't think I've been farther than like five blocks from the convention center, um, which means that I've had a really a lot of like really great meetings with people and a it's lot a balance, of really great interactions. I haven't found my balance quite yet, uh, but uh, but it's been scientifically it's been a really great meeting. Um, so I was in a, I spoke in a session yesterday about. Uh, ecosystem resilience in the face of extreme events, especially droughts. Um, and so the first part of the session was focused on uh, tree responses to droughts mm-hmm. um, and tree mortality. And basically the question of why trees dry why trees die in droughts, mm-hmm. um, which turns out physiologically to not be a super well understood process. Um, and often there's lags involved in tree mortality. So trees don't die during the drought, but they, they die like as much as five to 10 years later. Um, and how that happens is something that there were a lot of really interesting talks about in the session that I was in. And then the, and then the second half, which is the part that I was in, was trying to integrate some of those physiological processes with larger landscape scale processes and, uh, and sort of try to scale up to outside the level of the individual plant. So this whole topic of extreme events and, and things is, is going to become more and more important with mm-hmm. climate change. So it's a, it's a good direction for ecologists to be thinking about, isn't it? Absolutely. Um, and actually, I heard that there was another, I didn't make it to the session, but I heard that there was another one in the morning about extremely wet events, so mm. deluges, and what happens when you have like super, super wet years, so flooding, landslides, et cetera. So there's, there, there's the extreme drought end, and then there's the extreme wet end as well. Um, and we're expecting, I think, more of, more of both into the future. I think so, yes. So, uh, yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you very much for talking to me and talking to us. Uh, thank you. We covered a range of topics, I think, and uh, I think that's and really, really interesting for everybody. So, um, anything else you'd, you'd like to add? No, this was wonderful. Thank you very much for well, the opportunity. Thank you very much.